Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. When I was 19 years old, I read C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, for the first time, and I remember feeling devastated. I remember experiencing this weirdly deep, painful ache because Lewis's autobiography was really an autobiography of his imagination, the literary and spiritual imagination as it was formed largely in his childhood and his youth. And I remember feeling overwhelmed with like the strange like grief because the texts and authors and the things that Lewis was describing, I had never heard of, never read, had never been introduced to me when I was the ages he was, when he had encountered them. I, I just felt like strange betrayal. Um, nobody in particular. Loving parents gave me all sorts of books, raised in a loving home, a lot of support, um, you know, always went to decent schools, had loving teachers. But there was a world that Lewis described having encountered and which shaped him, a world in which things like the northernness broke through and brought to his heart a longing that was eventually understood to him as joy. And I just remember reading this story at 19 years old, feeling like I had to catch up now. I had to go back and learn what I hadn't learned. Looking at that now, at, nine, at, at talking about myself as 19 sounds kind of absurd, but I just remember grieving that there was a world that I did not know about in the ages in which I would have wanted to have known about it. Today, I have the distinct honor of sitting down with Reverend Hayden Butler, uh, one of my colleagues and friends at Pacifica Christian High School. Hayden attended Biola University, where he studied English literature and the Bible. Uh, he was a part of the Tory Honors Institute, where he studied the great books in the Socratic mode with master teachers, something I always sort of wish I had been able to do. Uh, he was an original student at Wheatstone Ministries, which some of our hearers know very well. And he worked there for 10 years, facilitating camp experience for students, educators, and pastors. He was a founding faculty member at Pacifica Christian High School in Orange County, founding the English department in 2015. Uh, Hayden holds master's degrees in English literature from UC Irvine and a master's in theological studies from the Divinity School at Regent University. In 2016, he was ordained an Anglican priest, and he currently serves as an associate rector at St. Matthew's Anglican Church in Newport Beach. With over a decade of teaching, full-time teaching experience in English, Bible, theology, and all the things in between, I was excited to have Hayden come on to talk to us today about Christianity and the imagination. Welcome to the podcast, Hayden. It's a pleasure to be here. One of the ways we are always trying to access the topics that we sort of tackle in the podcast is to take seriously our experiences as, as a ground of some sort, not to be overly Protestant in a certain way and be afraid of experience as, uh, as, a, as a main viaduct of truth and, uh, and understanding and, and knowledge. Um, and, so, and so what I want to do is I want to ask about your experience uh, growing up in the home you grew up in with the interests that you had sort of a micro version of course but of of your so surprised by joy mm -hmm. um and then maybe we can get to those bigger topics of the imagination through that uh through that wardrobe as it were sure um well i'm from texas originally um a patch of north texas called amarillo which is um for those who've been there they know that it's one of those blessed places to use another great texas word uh, in the world where uh, you can experience a dust storm and an ice storm in the same day um, <laughs> and it's uh, it was i only spent a few years there i spent a few more years after that in albuquerque new mexico 
before moving out with my family to Southern California. And it, it took many years to realize that uh, that migration westward across the desert of the Southwest, finally hitting the coast and seeing the Pacific Ocean for the first time, uh, made this indelible impression, I think, on my sensibility and my imagination growing up. Um, I was growing up in the house where my where my mom was a a former opera singer when in her youth and was a was was a woman who loved painting um, was always engaging her creativity and my dad was an entrepreneur and so um, in his own way was a creative mind who was always looking for the next adventure the the next uh, the next big thing and so growing up in that household was curious because um, I got to see a lot of different vantage points on the imagination. Um, and it was it was uh, formed in these environments that had these striking qualities to them, these really uh, powerful qualities to them, the kind of big sky and the big horizon of the desert, and then uh, the endless, the seemingly endless horizon of the Pacific Ocean, uh, while I was being raised by these two people who were constantly pushing me to think beyond the, the obvious, to mm. think beyond the immediate. Uh, my mom, put my brother and I in all sorts of activities that challenged our imagination and grew it where, you know, we were, we were put in art classes. We were, um, we always had music playing in the house and there was always this multi-sensory thing going on around us. Uh, we were encouraged to look at um, beautiful things, to listen to beautiful things. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, we had my dad's sensibility, which was also very creative, but also very practically oriented. And so it was always like, okay, so what are we going to do? What are we going to do with these, with right, this, right, with right. this imagination? And they never sort of said that in any, in any uh, apparent or obvious way. And it's yeah. only through reflection that I kind of see the influence of both of those, um, both of those ways of being on my life. But, um, growing up. Um, I, I realized that I had a I had a wealth of um, creativity around me and didn't always really realize it or appreciate it um, a, until later when when I realized how, just how deeply it had formed me. You describe this the, a home in which your parents are both um, interested in a in the world beyond what's right in front of you, whether it's just bringing music into that space regularly, encouraging or pushing you to um, try new things, challenge you with creative expression or learning. What, what was the role of, of Christianity in your home? Um, is this an evangelical home? Is this a, um, is this a non-Christian home? Is this a high church, a low church home? What, what would you say? Because I feel like part of the grief I had um, at reading Lewis which is probably not the right response in some ways <laughs> to surprise by joy. Um, but part of that was there was no one to blame in the sense that I had this loving, beautiful Christian world that I was given, but that world in and of itself was not aware of the world Lewis was talking about, or if it was, it didn't value it enough to present it to people. And so I had a Christian world that was nurtured my imagination, nurtured my soul, formed real faith, but it was a world that just felt smaller than I had hoped once I realized how big things were. So, yeah. so raised in a Christian home, yes. is that correct? That's correct. Was there a separation between this, this, this imagination, creativity, your parents, uh, sort of their sort of mode, their sort of personalities and like church, like your way you thought of Christianity as a young person? Yeah, no, I think there's a, there's a bit, there's a great connection there. Um, so my house was, uh, was, was Christian. My, both my parents were Christian. So I grew up in a Christian home, um, where I was encouraged to actively be a Christian, um, it, but you know, it, it ties back to our, our Texas roots where in our Texas, New Mexico roots, my mom was a Methodist. My dad was a Baptist and, you know, in the Southwest that, that came with a certain degree of scandal. Uh, they had eloped, uh, when they, when they got <laughs> married. And I think, I think now to largely maybe to avoid some of the, uh, the, 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 the uh, internal politics of that, uh, that interdenominational, uh, union, um, but I think, you know, as I, as I was raised, I kind of wove in between those two worlds. Um, so it was squarely Protestant. It was, it was, um, but it was, it was two different flavors of it. Um, from Methodism, I, uh, I acquired a sense of liturgy, um, a sense of hymnody, 
um, I, it, there's a, there was a kind of poetry to the practice of the faith there. Did you um, attend a Methodist church? I did. I was, a, I was baptized as a Methodist oh, okay. Um, okay. just down the road from here at uh, Palisades Methodist in no San Clemente. Oh, um, no way. Yeah, that was our family church when we first moved out here. <laughs> That's wild. And uh, I was baptized there and uh, just remember feeling in love with how big the place was felt the church felt i've since been back and i realized that it's a it's a you know it's a it's a smallish church but <laughs> yeah, i yeah. remember being a child and walking into the walking into the sanctuary and, and just looking up continually mm. because they had invested in some beautiful a beautiful stained glass window that uh, a lot of parishioners had helped to build and then the front piece with the cross that just stretched seemingly endlessly up into the into the air um, I remember just spending a lot of time in there looking up mm. and that, that, that again sort of formed um, this sensibility for what church could be like. Um, I remember um, feeling just my chest move when the pipe, when the organ would hit the high notes of the doxology right. we would sing during this, during the service. Um, but as we, as we grew up, we, we, end, we ended up uh, winding to, in a different direction because my dad um, wanted my brother and I to have um, a youth group. Um, and as we grew into adolescence, uh, there the the youth program at the Methodist Church um, what, uh, had had kind of become less robust, and so my dad uh, moved us over to a church, another church uh, in the area, um, Pacific Coast Church, uh, oh, where I attended yes. youth group there for a while, yeah. and it was very focused on doctrine and on learning the Bible oh. and on, um, on on and on cultivating the moral life, and it was and it was and it, and it highlighted these things and stressed them, and so uh, but I but I always I always retained that sense of the sublime, the sense of awe that I had experienced or at the Methodist Church, but then it was informed by this robust, you know, curriculum and doctrine and instruction and, and in Bible uh, knowledge. Um, I was attending, um, I, as I grew up, I attended both Christian and non-Christian schools, and again, bo- experienced both of those both of those worlds, um, and really was encouraged by my parents to lean into them and to find what was to be uh, learned in them. I think another uh, element of this was was also that in my home, um, even though we were we were in a Christian home, my my parents and especially my mom uh, was never sort of restricted um, our exposure to music or books uh, in the in the way that we were only allowed to read quote unquote Christian books. They didn't enforce any kind of Christian subculture right. in your world, right? Exactly. Even if you dipped into those kinds of places where they existed or where they. Or maybe other families did. It right. wasn't true of your home. It wasn't true of my home, yeah. and uh, it, but that, there, there was there was curating. Um, you know, we were curate our, our books and music were curated, and and movies and TV shows were curated by age, you know, to an appropriate age level. Um, and there, there wasn't it wasn't um, just kind of open ended. But at the same time, you know, I was, I, you know, I I grew up listening to hymns in the church, and you know, and, and listening to. Um, but then also listening to, you know, um, like my like my mom's music, especially, you know, from the 80s, you know, so she was listening to, you know, um, like Fleetwood Mac and, yeah. you know, and, 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 and Credence. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, and yeah. so I grew up with all of that kind of kind of blending into all of it, too. Um, we were encouraged, you know, to read to, to read widely um, as, as kids, too. So um, did, and, books, did books like early on, did books have you or was that something that you developed over time like was that yeah I think it developed it developed over time um I I I liked reading as a child um and I and I and I but I I I wasn't an adventurous reader Hmm. as a child my brother was much more adventurous than I was in the in the in the range of things he would want to read um, it really was my aunt who um, who inspired. Uh, I think I think my my love of a, of a wider range of literature because one summer she was she was essentially our daily you know companion, our caretaker, our babysitter, and she gave me this list of great books and said every time you read one of these books, um, we will go like do something fun together. Nice. And so she incentivized <laughs> this exploration of books that I hadn't read before. How old were you? You know, I was at that point, I think, I think nine years oh, old. Oh, that's so cool. And so, you know, and they th- these were a little bit more. So for a nine-year-old, you know, I, I picked up To Kill a Mockingbird. Ouch. You know, and, and, and really struggled through it. Yeah. Um, and really, and was disoriented by it. I picked up at, by, at, at 10 or 11, I think at 11, I picked up The Diary of Anne Frank because mm-hmm. it was on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, she gave me a sense that because she loved great literature, she gave me a sense that even if I was just a kid, 
you know, it was it was okay to struggle through something you didn't quite fully understand um, because it would grow, and it would grow you to do that. And I, I credit I credit her in that in that critical period of my childhood for for getting me beyond what I think was a habit was I was I wanted I gravitated towards things I was already comfortable with right and and I stayed around things that I was already comfortable with and she said push push out push out from there um, read things you're not sure you're gonna like read things you're not sure you're gonna agree with mm. read things that you're that may bother you a little bit um, because you, that'll actually make you a better reader for one. And it'll also, it'll expand your perspective on things. It'll make you, make you a little wiser. That's remarkable. Just thinking, I mean, both of us are uh, recent parents um, and just, I mean, it's easy to, there's always something to bash or <laughs> sure. say, it's, say it's terrible, <laughs> but just thinking of like that obsession with sort of grade levels of reading right. and the vast majority of the things that I see for any particular grade level being um, twaddle, just being nonsense, just, just so much fluff that you, that is clearly, this is because we know they will already like this right. for at least five minutes right. until they need the next one that they'll like for five minutes. And that that assumption that I think we can have even as parents that like, okay, well this, they're only, you know, this age. So this is clearly not for them or this is, and yet I see that has carried through into our adulthood where right. when I mention the kind of things that I've since made up some time since I was 19 to try to read, um, many people I think will just, they don't have time or that's not for them. They're not a reader like that they didn't go and study English literature like you or I might have done mm-hmm. they're not professional educators right like that that we're that's just our thing and they have other things and but that lack of sense that this is even for people and especially maybe if they open a particular text and it's hard and weird and that kind of thing that is clearly being cultivated in the youngest people by how we and what we give them as gifts and and as parents that idea of of giving something that you know is beautiful that you know has deep value even if whoever it is even if it's a 55 year old or or a seven year old if you you know they're not going to get it all they're going to get something but it's going to raise the ceiling on what they know now experientially exists. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, again, and this is this could be largely down to me um, at, at young ages asking for certain things and not other things for the same kind right. of reason you're talking about, just knowing what I liked and more books. I remember I like books with dogs in it. Yeah. I like books about <laughs> baseball players. So I would ask for those and that's my loving parents would provide those, mm-hmm. right? Um, had they provided something else, I might have been like, where is the dog and the baseball player? Exactly. Right? <laughs> like, I don't understand <laughs> what happened to our agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, looking back on it, it's like my my imaginative world was at the ceiling of dogs, of what I already knew and loved. And so it was just revolving as an almost tighter and tighter circle around hmm. what I already knew. And yeah. so it wasn't expanding. It was shrinking as I was growing, you know, and I was thinking the world kept needing to fit into that space because I didn't have a larger one. Um, that idea that you had an aunt uh, that gave you this list is just magic to me. <laughs> just, I hope aunts will hear this and be like, yes, I must have a list. Um, did that... Now, when do you think that your experience as uh, a reader or just growing up, that love of of learning or just the imagination, where were there touchstone books or moments where it just blew the roof off the place and you knew that even if this was a little different or you weren't sure about all of it, there was something like Lewis would describe, that sort of poignant longing because you've seen something, whatever your northernness would be. Mm-hmm. Um, can you take us to a moment or maybe a, a text or something that really started to open that up as not just an interesting challenge from your aunt with incentives, yeah. but like, okay, I want more. I want this more. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think, I think it was a progressive process. It, it took, it took, it took years uh, as it slowly pushed out the boundaries because in my, in my family, I, I, my personality tended to be cautious, be very obedient, 
to the to all the rules that worked both in a behavioral way but also in in terms of my imagination in terms of my creativity i you know when i would when i was learning to paint i would be very exacting i did i was i didn't take liberties with <laughs> right, you know right, right. the the kind of with the with the the models that i was given to paint my brother and i contrast in this way he's very much a, a kind of he, pu- he pushes beyond the 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 obvious he pushes beyond the rule in a more comfortable way but i think when it came to reading um there were a few moments that do spring to mind one of them was reading um to kill a mockingbird mm. at age 11 and being confronted with the story of tom robinson in that novel and being confronted by this idea that you knew being confronted for the first, I think for the first time in my life with the um, dissonance of knowing that someone was innocent and still seeing something bad happen to that person. Yeah. um, Something unjust and real and realizing that that was, that was a, again, an expansion of the imagination. Right. And I remember just sitting with that. I had to close the book. I remember closing it and just sitting in my room and crying Hmm. over that. Um, it mo- it was moving. It was um, it was infuriating. It, it activated emotions that I had not felt by mm. that point, um, and it brought me into the world in a visceral way and gave me a, a, con- a connection. I, I uh, it blurred the line between where I was sitting in my bedroom and what was happening in this book for the first time. Usually, books remained on the page. This time, mm. the, that page sucked me in. Another one was um, was reading, and, and again, this one is, is more, I think, is iconic to this process of growing the imagination, was uh, reading Lois Lowry's The Giver mm. um, when I was 12. Right. And the book is all about this very thing, right? right. Which right. is all about right. having someone come along and and give you, you know, give you the burden of wisdom, give you the... Um, give you exposure to the things that um, hadn't troubled you or overjoyed you, hadn't moved you before, and and experiencing the the move from a kind of monochromatic view of life into a very technicolor view of life. That was another one of those moments that that I realized was kind of turning point. And then the third one came uh, a few years later, while I was reading these books from my aunt and reading and 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 taking up her challenges of getting you know reading bigger and more complex books. I, I retained still my, my taste. Like you like dog books, right? <laughs> I, I was reading an embarrassing amount of Star Wars novels, hey, right? At the time, I've, like in there, uh, you know, what is now all non-canon yeah. since the Disney <laughs> buyout, which a grieves me silence. deeply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the lost childhood. Right. But being captivated <laughs> was by all canon, that. Hayden? I know. It's like, how it, could they do that? it was so invalidating <laughs> to hear that, you know, it's like, how can they just declare this thing? Same. You know, this thing is no yeah. longer valid. <laughs> it never happened. Um, but, what the good news is, is I'm able, I, I, having since lost those books, I have been able to find them on the cheap on eBay because everyone's <laughs> dumping them now, right? So it's, it's sort of, it worked out in the end. Um, but, but while I was reading these, I, 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 was, I, was, I returned continually to this kind of lore, which ended up being, again, a very influential uh, mythology to me, mm-hmm. the Star Wars mythology. Yeah. Um, especially the mythology surrounding the Jedi and the yeah. Sith. And that became a kind of acting, you know, formational principle for me, just like watching that and, and, and reading that. And I realized in retrospect how much I had adopted a lot of that as a kind of functional um, you know, sort of formational model. You're an Anglican <laughs> priest. You get to wear exactly. robes. <laughs> exactly. It's the one thing I really yeah. am mad about from time to time is that I don't look like a Jedi when I'm preaching. <laughs> it is. It's. It's totally. It, you know, like my wife. My wife uh, teases me sometimes. She says, "You know, you. You. You know, you. You did. You did martial arts. You know, you became an Anglican cleric. You know, you're a teacher at a school." He goes, "You basically spent your life trying to become a Jedi Knight." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's an accurate read. You know, fair. of all of that. That's a fair. That's a fair observation." Um, so, but but I think the third one was when I went to Wheatstone for the first time. One of the things Wheatstone does is it, it throws Plato at mm. teenagers, um, and I remember being given the dialogue Euthyphro at age sixteen wow. when I attended that camp, and being completely lost, like so maddeningly lost in it. Um, it was it was it was a it was the it was the one of the it was the first time, and I it was important because it was the first time I'd encountered a book that. I felt humiliated by. Wow. It was it was such a um, it was such an overwhelming, overwhelmingly substantial piece of writing um, that to ponder even the first ten words of it took hours. Mm. And 
um, I, you know, with, with a lot of books that I'd read, I, I, I could kind of get into them, but this was an entirely different thing. It made, it gave me the sense that there's some really serious stuff out there. Right. Um, that is both deeply creative, but also um, like just ponderously substantial and profound. And um, I, I remember getting to that point. I was 16 years old, and I said, I, 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 and, and looking at this thing, and say, I, I want to be the I want to be the kind of person that can appreciate this. But that only came after that sense of humiliation yeah. in front of it, and that was not a pleasant experience. No, right? That was an experience of. You know, I did okay in school. I was doing all right, right in school, right. but then I realized, like, oh boy, you, you ain't nothing. <laughs> I you am, ain't nothing. I am, I am nothing <laughs> compared to this. And and that was a, that was that ended up being so liberating because it, what it did is it pushed me to pursue what would it take to be someone who could appreciate this. And so what I what what it did is it put me into the company of of a, of a great one of the great teachers of my life. Um, John Mark Reynolds, mm. uh, who was the founder of the Tory Institute and one of the, and the founder of Wheatstone, uh, and who was teaching at the conference as as the keynote, and it pushed me in the direction of this person who seemed to deeply love this thing that we were asked to read that I was bar- struggling over the first ten words of, and he he had a passion for it. I'm like I want I want to know why he feels that way, hmm. which then pushed me in the direction of Tori eventually. That's interesting. Um, Tell me though, for those who don't know, because I introed, I mentioned in the intro about Wheatstone, uh, and a few of our people are certainly um, bound up with it in, in really interesting ways. Uh, most people have no idea what we're talking about. Sure. So we've said camp, we've mentioned 16. That doesn't sound like 16-year-old camp. <laughs> it <laughs> Reading <doesn't. laughs> Plato what, while you're on the zip line? Like, what's happening here? Right. So uh, Wheatstone is, it has, it, you know, it's been around for 20 years, 20 plus years now, and it's, it, or 20 years about, about exactly now. And it's been a, a couple of different things. But I think the best way to describing Wheatstone is that it's a kind of, it's a, it's a kind of rite of, rite of passage into Christian adulthood. Mm. Um, it's an experience. Um, it's very experientially driven, but it's designed to give you a kind of tidal wave of the good life um, in a one-week period. It's overwhelming and exhausting uh, to both attend and work for. Um, so some of the things that it does is it, it spends time. Um, it spends time talking about what adulthood is. It gives teenagers who go to it a sense of, of being called into a bigger world, um, which is what a good rite of passage does. Um, and so it engages physicality. Like we, we start off the week engaging our physicality through what we call Epic Monday, where we go and do a lot of group initiatives. We've done ropes courses before where it is a very physical thing and, and gets us into the present, gets us into the present with the community, the little cohorts that we're among. Mm. And then it, throughout the week, we engage things artistically. We go to the Getty, we go to the opera. Um, we engage, we watch films and talk about them. We read Plato and talk about that. We, we, we try to give kids, we, we try to inundate kids with, with deeply meaningful things throughout that week to give them a sense that um, to be a Christian, to be a Christian adult is to um, be deeply imaginative, to be deeply think, a deep thinker, to be someone who engages with the world around them and seeks to make things that are good and true and beautiful, um, that, that have a lasting, that are, that are lasting, right. And to appreciate things that have been created like that. Do you think, I mean, so what I appreciate about what you just said is again, it can be so sort of, uh, relegated to personality. Mm-hmm. I'm not a reader, right. I you know, I don't have time for this or I, you know, I was a STEM major or I did this or I'm just, an, you know, I'm, I'm whatever. But what you were saying there was this is about Christian adulthood, that there is a, the role of the imagination, which is really what we're talking about right. uh, beginning to end, not just our you know, sort of proclivities here or there, but the role of the imagination in the Christian life. That's what we're talking about. That's what is tying all these threads together. That's what Wheatstone is trying to right. um, offer this rite of passage, whether it devastates 16 year olds. Right. Um, and in fact, probably expects to, yes. um, because they're being again, just crushed with the weight of the good, mm-hmm. um, of which we have like barely tasted <laughs> or barely been expected to have tasted maybe, right. um, by teachers, even loving parents and things like this. 
but that it's not some side thing for certain people who happen to be a little bookish or uh, opera-ish or whatever-ish, but that this is for Christians. This is part of what is fundamental and maybe fundamentally missing from so much of Christian formation. Now, this Wheatstone thing is, is attempting to bring that to teenagers entering into adulthood. Where do you go next once you're, you, you get the, the semi-truck of this imaginative world of weighty thought co- combined with beauty mm-hmm. that is more than you can sort of grapple with or, or process? Then it does that that pushes you, and you say you also have a teacher, so you have a, a human being who is not sixteen, who is not just comfortable with these things, but sort of has submitted to these things, mm-hmm. um, loves these things, and is passionately trying to share these things with others. What what a teacher right. does, trying to bring and invite other people into a world that they maybe didn't even know was there. So, do you? enter that world um, as a eager student? Do you enter that world a little nervously because you kind of are a little cautious as a person you'd said before, at least compared to your brother or something like that? How does that go next after this crash course, as it were, uh, at Wheatstone? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So you you could look at the Wheatstone thing, Wheatstone and things like Wheatstone as a kind of booster shot, mm. right? They kind of kickstart the thing. Um, but it's it, it, and it's done at an unsustainable rate and pace for the course of this week, right? We're going from we're right. going twenty hours a day, right. um, and so it's meant to give uh, exposure. It's meant to give you a, a sense of the bigness of things, you know. And and like you like you mentioned, right? There, there's this world that, that that devastates a little bit, but it uh, it's not something that I think stops when you enter into it. Um, when you when you enter in the, as a teenager, it's not something that stops. I think ever really because right. can, we're, we're being continually um, called into that. Well, the, the the motto of Wheatstone was uh, never stop growing up. I love that. Um, and and the and what what's what's reflected by that is 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 it reflects our ongoing journey uh, into um, into God's reality um, that never ends because God is never ending. Um, and so I, I remember my experience going into Wheatstone and then going into Tory and then really going into any profound thing, right? Going into marriage, going, mm. going into parenthood, mm. going into teaching. All of these things are worlds to themselves. And to make an entrance into them is to be brought from, to be brought from one place into, into something that is um, unfamiliar at first and then um, forces you to respond to it in a way that grows you. Um, that's what makes the that's, that's what makes these things so beautiful. Um, I'm re- I'm reminded of of T. S. Eliot right in in the Four Quartets when he says in Burton Norton, um, humankind cannot bear very much reality, mm. right? And continually experiencing that while I'm also continually reflecting on how different experiences of that feeling overwhelmed by reality. Um, but and uh, along the way have led to these bigger things have grown me if we submit to them if we assent to them but I, I, I think what makes uh, what brings us back is is uh, as an example is as again to return to Lewis is the example of his great little novel the great divorce mm-hmm. um, which gives a picture of this as an unending process right because all these people that are arriving, um, on the on the fields of outer heaven in the great divorce, they're being guided. They have to be guided by someone who's already been there, who's become acclimated to this this, this profound, substantial world, um, and has to be led sort of very gingerly at first, and then with greater gusto as as they as they acclimate to it. Um, but the novel is all about all the things that kind of get in the way of that and the ways we, we can um, endure and hope to, um, to overcome those obstacles and be led into, into deeper heaven um, continually. And the, the novel is, is wonderfully ambiguous about what deep heaven is. <laughs> um, and I think that you have to be, right? Because yeah. it's, not, it's, it's depicted as a destination, but almost like a destination that doesn't have a back wall to it. Mm. Right, where it's kind of you're going 
you're going on into deep heaven. Uh, but deep heaven is always talked about with odd tones as as something that even while you're there, there's a depth that you're continually experiencing. Um, and I think I think that that's that that that's the thing that's depicted in the journey of I think a good education in the in the in good spiritual formation. Um, it's it's reflected in every great adventure story that we've always we've ever loved, right? It was the thing that you know that halted us on the borderland on our bicycle as children, right? Where mm-hmm. we knew this was the last the furthest I had gone before on my bicycle, and then it was it was all encapsulated in that impulse to say. I'm going to go a little further today, (laughs) right? I'm going to go a little further on this bicycle. I don't know what I'm going to find, right? You know, but I'm, but I'm, but there's a curiosity that drives that. Yeah. Further up and further in. Exactly. Yeah. There's so many things that that come to mind as you're saying that. And I just, the, the dissolving the unnatural boundary between uh, what it means to be a Christian, Mm -hmm. what it means to grow, to never stop growing, growing up. Um, seems to me one of those pieces I was missing for, for a while, again, maybe because of me, right? Um, and, and, and just the things that I, I did cultivate. But that idea that this is what it means to grow into an ever deeper understanding of the real, of God's reality, of the kingdom of God now and then, right? Mm-hmm. That, that kind of language of the apostle, that idea that great literature um, could bring us into those places that it could be for anyone, that it, it could be for people who missed all of this and are listening to this now like, well, geez, right? You were 19 and you were sad. Now, you know, imagine where I'm at now having never, you know, whatever. Um, as a teacher, mm-hmm. um, you teach, because you teach at the high school, obviously, there's an age range there that's pretty fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you teach as a priest. Right. And when I've talked about being bivocational over the years, um, you know, people will always be sympathetic, you know, like, oh, you know, it kind of means you maybe aren't good at either. Uh, <laughs> you know, or, or, you know, there's something's, something's going on. Or, yeah, or yeah, you must be exhausted all the time and there's no way to sustain that. Yeah. And, and so obviously, you know, something went wrong and you're having to add something to, right. uh, to whatever. Um, but I've always felt that the one just continually fed and saved the other. Mm-hmm. That the moment I would get trapped in the world of church, overly trapped in the world of church and start getting pulled down by whatever is the unmovable thing that I can't fix and I'm not even called to fix. Um, I have to go work on the other thing and I don't have time to completely fall forward headlong forever into that problem while being able to care for, pray over, uh, try to help uh, people through that problem. Um, I've always thought, man, this is the Lord regularly saving me from, from, from being trapped in the wrong way while being able to see that this is the same job. And that one is, is the cultivation of the human soul, whatever humans you happen to be looking at. Right. Because that's the thing in the church, as you, you and I both know, um, people said, oh, you never thought you'd be a high school teacher. Who gets a doctorate to go back and teach high school? Um, but I always thought it was like a strange thing because I was just teaching nine-year-olds at church. Right. And so I was like, well, they're older than some of the people I've taught. That's true. Um, but I never had those fixed, like, teaching or education is about this group. It's like I teach their parents and I teach the nine-year-olds. So now I teach, you know, 14 to, you know, 18 year olds or or whatever as well, or in addition to the 14 year olds I would teach here or that kind of permeability, uh, maybe a vocation. Um, How did you see those worlds uh, sort of coming together as sort of the role of the teacher began to emerge for you? You go to Tory, you are exposed to the great books, but you're exposed to great teachers and you see the absolute necessity of one to the other of that invitation, of that door of access, of that guide, as you said, is fundamental. The guide is fundamental in The Great Divorce because the guide is fundamental in Dante, because the guide is fundamental in Virgil, because the guide is fundamental, because the guide is fundamental, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the teacher is always something. We always need to be teachable. We always need to be mentored. We are meant to be disciples, learners, right? Um, how did you move that picture forward? Were those things obvious? Did they just start to all coalesce? Was it fairly natural? 
I think I, I can't claim any credit for that. I, everything that I, I think I understand about this world, um, about, about this world of, of good and true and beautiful things, um, I've received. And then when I expand that, I look back, you know, we began our conversation with, you know, a reflection on childhood and the influences of my parents. Now they weren't, they weren't sort of laying out a priori, some, some curriculum for me. They were being themselves, Mm. right? But they were people who as themselves, uh, loved things and that love was contagious, um, it taught me to love things, not always the same things, but to love things. And I think that's where my formation as a teacher and a pastor began, was looking, looking at people um, in, my, in my, as far as back as my high school education, right? Having teachers that clearly loved the thing that they were doing, the thing that they were teaching. Um, having professors in Tory and in the English department who loved this thing. They loved it enough to dedicate years, sometimes decades of life to it, right? Um, that's compelling. That was, that was, that was really compelling. They, they weren't, um, they weren't academicians in the sort of negative sense where they were, uh, they, they liked kind of critiquing. Um, they loved, um, they loved appreciatively, um, more than anything else. And that was what made them their, their way of being so contagious. So, um, so admirable, so, um, so compelling to me. Um, so as I, as I looked at that, I realized that, um, as I was, as this sort of budding, you know, vocation of teaching and pastoring was, was, was growing up, um, I wanted to be like that, you know? Um, I, I, I think, you know, I heard, I read, I heard recently, I watched a YouTube video of, of, of Anthony Esselin, who's one of the great sort of Dante minds right now. Um, he was advising a group of high school students at a talk that he was giving um, when they went to college to find teachers who, lo- who do what they do for the sake of love. Mm. Um, because no matter what they were teaching, that was going to be a good thing. Uh, that was going to be something good um, to be in the presence of, to seek out people who do what they do for the sake of love. Um, and, and not for more sort of um, expedient or pragmatic reasons, right? Do it because they were, they were in love with it. That's why I wanted to learn to read Plato, right? Because John Mark loved Plato. And I wanted to know why, why does he love Plato? Right. Um, you know, I, I think about uh, some of our own, our own teachers um, who, who we've had, you know, at UCI, for example, right? Um, and it's like, why do, it was like, why do I want to love Shakespeare? Because there's something to love in Shakespeare. This person passionately loves yeah. Shakespeare and yeah. I want to love Shakespeare like she does. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's really what, um, started to bring these worlds together for me was that what made great teaching, what made great pastoring, um, was, was doing, um, doing this thing for the sake of love, right? Um, whatever you do do um, with love um, and whether it's reading Plato whether it's reading Shakespeare whether or not it's um, reading the scriptures whether or not it's talking to the person in front of you whether it's helping down at a soup kitchen like that is the reason to do all of these things um, and that was the reason lurking behind all the compelling teachers I've ever had that was the reason be, that was the the reason behind what made my parents raising of me so influential my aunts as you know kind mm-hmm. of work in my life it was all these people who loved good things, and they ta- they showed me um, by getting to be around them for a while how to love good things too. That formation, um, we obviously uh, in a, in the classroom are focused on certain ages that sort of emerging adulthood or those you know preparing them for rites of passage. Mm-hmm. That it makes so much sense to introduce good, true, and beautiful things um, to as young a person as can bear it, you mm-hmm. know, or, or can be loved and guided into bearing it uh, and enjoying it and seeing those little glimpses. Um, what about for those who maybe never went to college? Sure. Maybe didn't have a teacher like that in, in, in any of the things we're, we're talking about. Um, yeah. Maybe this person is, you know, full, full, full time, 
parent uh, later on, never going to go back to any time of sort of education. They're not anywhere near that kind of world on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, We're mentioning these things and it could still sound like the obscurity or the nerdity of like oh, for the sure. Jedi and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Um, what do you, what do you say to, um, cause this is the reason we're talking about this is cause we really believe this is not only for everyone, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly for, um, every Christian, but it is necessary at some fundamental level, yeah. um, for what purpose? And I hate to do the instrumental turn, but let's just say your dad's sort of practicality or, or whatever. Yeah. Like if you were trying to convince someone a little bit, you're not, a lot bit, but a little bit. They're already listening to this, so something's going on. Um, but if you were trying to compel them about the role of this sort of thing in the formation of them in the world now, mm-hmm. um, what can this kind of thing open up, um, steer them from, draw them toward that would be worth uh, seeking out um, texts and teachers and, and ways of getting in? Yeah. I think well, the first thing that comes to mind is is we all want to be free, you know. Um, we we all have the. Exp- I think at the the older we get, we have the experience of um, of asking the question: Is this all there is? Um, and that's a that's a kind of desperate question, um, especially the later into the night we ask it. Um, but I think you know I'm re- I'm reminded of, of Frederick Douglass. Um, right, who found in just learning the skill of reading um, a kind of freedom of soul that um, that made more endurable uh, the grave injustices that he was suffering. Right, um, it's sometimes attributed to him the, the 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 idea that a person can't be made a slave if they're free in their soul, um, and I think. You know, I think that's the that's that's what we really want. I think that's a basic human longing, is to experience um, is is to experience that kind of freedom uh, that he was describing. Um, so, I, you know, as, as as someone who grew up with you know with parents neither of whom finished college, mm. um, and and having grown up around a lot of people who weren't academic, um, the whole process of learning, um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't come to the understanding of what like the academy was like until very late, um, very like relatively recently in life. Um, for me, it was always, this is just what the people in my life liked doing. They liked, you know, they liked what they liked and they liked it for, you know, compelling reasons. Um, it was never, uh, had never had that kind of artificial framework. Like, you know, you need to, um, love reading so that you can get a good grade in, for reading, or you need to get a degree in reading so that you can be good at reading. Is I had great readers in my life who didn't have college degrees, who had only you know graduated high school, um, and who did that while they were doing all the practical things of life, too. Um, when I think about Wheatstone, right, the idea of never stop growing up, um, this is not something that we can jam into a kind of artificial development chart and saying like, okay, when you get to this age, you've grown up now and now you're done and now you're grown up. I think that's a, that's a despairing narrative Mm. to tell ourselves. Um, because if we have gotten to a place in life, maybe years after the age group that usually attends high school or college, and we still sense that there is something sort of confining about us, right? We're con- kind of confined to the the, 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 the horrific is-what-it-is way of looking at the world. Um, and we all have that in, in, in different ways that we need to be freed from, right? Um, I think, I think we, if, we, if we confine ourselves to that idea that growing into the appreciation of good and true and beautiful things, to grow in love um, for what is real— uh, if we get the sense that that was there's a time period of life where that's supposed to happen, and if it doesn't happen, we're doomed. Um, that is where despair sets in, and our soul begins to die. Um, I think I would say to anyone who's listening, um, it's it's never too late. Um, it's never too late to begin to wonder. Um, and I think you know to draw back to Lewis, uh, that's where this thing begins, right? We th- we think of um, wonderment. Right, the kind of curiosity that asks us to say, "I wonder what's behind that thing." Right, I wonder, um, 
I, I wonder what, what's behind this thing, uh, what's behind the world as I know it, as I just sort of have come to expect it to be. I think we can always pause and ask that. Now, there's some there's some things that I think r- r- uh, run afoul of that right. The, uh, you know, as, as both of us have young children, right. The one of the things is there's a fren- frenetic pace to life <laughs> that that keeps us from doing this. But I also think we intrude on our own um, inherent wonder, um, and we 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 put o- uh, unnecessary obstacles in the way of it. So uh, one thing that I think pops up in this is that we, uh, and this again draws back to Anthony Esselin, is um, we don't give ourselves enough time to um, be confronted by silence. Um, we don't give ourselves enough time to be confronted by stillness. And really, we don't give ourselves enough time to be, con- be confronted by boredom, um, which is where our wonder kind of comes in like a superhero mm. to save us, mm. right? Um, I remember when I was a kid, you know, it, there was the, the, the phrase was, you know, I'd ask my dad, like, you know, I'm bored right now. And he's like, he goes, well, go go find something to do. Go find, go, go, yeah, he's like, go explore. Mm. And um, there was this idea that boredom was not something to be um, immediately sort of um, done away with. It was something, it was, a, it was a sort of necessary precondition for an adventure, you know? Um, it was, and I, I see this in Lewis's own biography, right? That it, it was this sense of, I don't know what to, you know, you know I, there's nothing meaningful happening right now. It's like, well, go find some meaning. Mm. Um, but I think we, we get in our own way. A lot, you know, and it doesn't have anything to do with I didn't, you know, wasn't educated a particular way or I, I didn't read the right things. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with uh, allowing ourselves to be confronted by that discomfort so that um, it pushes us. It kind of it kind of it, it kind of nudges us in the side to say, hey, go find meaning, go find meaningful things. But I think um, we we cut that off at the knees before where we allowed ourselves to be bothered enough by it. Um, and so we're never provoked towards wonder. And so we're not provoked towards um, developing our imagination. We have all kinds of things that we, we use to kind of medicate our boredom and medicate the silence so that we don't have very much of any of that. And I think that if someone wants to grow an imagination, no matter where they're at in life, it's to um, give themselves a little more silence only so that they can be a little bored. And I bet if they do that, that there's going to be something that pops up that that ends up being the road to imagination for them. Reverend Hayden Butler, father, colleague, <laughs> Jedi master. <laughs> oh, uh, Lord willing. All, all the things someday. Uh, all the things someday. Thank you so much for for being our guide in this discussion and for sharing not only your thoughts but your thoughts as they come through your life and your experience. Um, I really appreciate you taking this time. Thank you, David. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe. And your sweet, sweet grandmother, old grandmother Eunice. Eunice should definitely subscribe. Until next time, may you live well, think well, and love well. Godspeed.